Let's turn now to the gospel lesson uh, for this morning. It comes to us from the 21st chapter of John. It's really one of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament. It's actually kind of interesting, too, because um, this 21st chapter of John was most likely added a few years after the original gospel of John was complete with chapter 20. So either John, the writer of the gospel, or one of his followers added this kind of as an epilogue, as a coda, because of the way that chapter 20 ends with Jesus being resurrected and kind of going away, some loose ends were there. And so this was added to help uh, the early church and now all of us to understand better what it means to be post-resurrection followers of Jesus. So now let's listen together as I read the this passage from the 21st chapter of John, verses 1 through 19. Listen for God's word to you today. So after these things, stuff that had happened before, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you no fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net of the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and he jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he, Peter, would glorify God. After this, Jesus said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your world and your word as best we can as your disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So having the uh, screen up here will remind you of what happened last Sunday in this sanctuary. How many of you were here for Mexico Sunday? Raise your hand. Great. It was fantastic. It was a great experience. I mean, I think the film that we showed last week, which is now available on our website, was probably the best film I've ever seen of the work project, the work teams that we do every uh, spring break down in Mexico. And the, the stories were, that were shared were fantastic as well. And it all brought me back to a time when I actually was, you know, way back in the dark ages, when I was 16 years old, and I was a junior in high school down in San Diego, I got to go on a Mexico trip too. And while most of the other groups, because there were a ton of them from all over Southern California, all these other groups were down there like our kids building houses, you know, hammering nails and putting up walls and all that kind of stuff. My church youth group, though, because we were from San Diego, so we went to build houses on weekends sometimes. Our church sent a youth group that I was part of to perform a musical play in Spanish called Breakfast in Galilee. So, as you might imagine, it was based on the same text I just read to you. It was written by a guy named Sonny Salisbury, who was my youth minister, as well as, at the time, a really well-known figure in the world of contemporary Christian music. So, we were down there singing, and the whole experience was amazing. We got to sing in, you know, village squares and churches. We even got to sing in a couple of prisons, including a youth prison. And altogether, it was an incredible week for me, life-transforming, and it probably had a lot to do when I look back on it and why I became a minister, following up on that experience. But what I want to tell you about is the next time I got to perform Breakfast in Galilee. It was about six months later, and my church youth group was going to perform it in an orphanage that my church ran down in Tijuana. Unfortunately, the guy who played Jesus before from our youth group was not available. So, the problem was he was perfect for the part. He had the scraggly long hair and a beard. I don't know how he did that when he was only 17 years old, but he did. And he didn't seem to have any problem at all standing up for 10 minutes with his arms tied to this cross with nothing around his waist but a cloth. That's what it takes to play Jesus sometimes. So somebody else, 
God, play Jesus. So the word got out, and for some reason, God only knows, I volunteered to do it. And of course, the whole week before the performance, I was a nervous wreck. I mean, first of all, I had to overcome my natural shyness, which was really a big deal to me when I was a teenager, to play the part in front of other people. And then I had to wrap my head around the idea that somehow I was supposed to be Jesus in front of other people. Well, to make a long story short, along with all the angst, it worked out okay, the play went on, and it was fine thanks to a wonderful audience of Mexican uh, kids and their caregivers. And also, <clears throat> thank God I got to wear bicycle shorts under my loincloth. And also I had these big cue cards <laughs> that people would hold up to help me if I forgot my lines as Jesus. Imagine that. Anyway, when I think back on what it felt like for me to play Jesus on stage... I can't help but wonder what it was like for those original disciples in the days and weeks after Easter, after Jesus himself was resurrected. What was it like for them? Now, to put it into context, <clears throat> in the previous chapter of the Gospel, John chapter 20, the risen Christ appears to the, well, to ten of the disciples in the upper room there in uh, Jerusalem, the first, on Easter day, the evening of that day, he appears to them and he says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now just think about those words for a second. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I send you. It's kind of a big deal. In Latin, the word for send is missio, from which we get the word mission. So just as Jesus had a mission to embody and to build up the kingdom of God on earth, you and I have the exact same mission. That is, we are sent into the world not just to play Jesus, but to be Jesus. Now, I know that sounds a little crazy. Possible. I mean, Jesus was the sinless Son of God, and God knows we're a bunch of fallible, sinful people who stumble and struggle and flail about and fail all the time. But guess what? That is exactly how the first disciples were after Jesus was resurrected. Exactly the same. For example, just look at Peter. Now he gets a, he's kind of well known in the New Testament, the Gospels, for some of the things that he does and some of, you know, some of his stumbling around and fumbling around and flailing and failing himself. But Jesus chooses Peter to be the leader of the other disciples. Of all people. And Peter then becomes the model of discipleship for everybody else who follows, including us. So, the text that I just read, John chapter 20, it is clear right from the start that 
things are not going very smoothly for Peter on his mission or anything else. He and six of the other disciples, they've decided to leave Jerusalem, where they had been, the last place they had seen the risen Christ. They traveled by foot at least a week, all the way back home to Galilee. They're out there on boats on the Sea of Tiberias, or as it said, the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. Now, it's possible that, you know, John means this symbolically, you know, that they're trying to do what Jesus told them to do after his resurrection, which is, quote, fish for people. That's a metaphor, of course. Or maybe, maybe they're just doing what they do best, which is to fish for fish. But either way it is, all night long they're out there on the sea and they are utterly unable to catch any fish. And then a voice from the shore calls out to them and tells them, well, guys, put your nets in the other direction. And in a flash, they capture all these fish, more than they could ever imagine, more than they could possibly hold in a boat. And so when that happens, they realize that the voice from the shore was Jesus. So they pull in their nets, they rush to shore, and as Peter dries off from his hasty uh, dip in the lake, Jesus serves them breakfast. A breakfast of bread, a breakfast of fish that he has cooked over a charcoal fire. And then he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And I want you to try to remember the last time that Peter was asked three questions right next to a glowing charcoal fire. Do you know when it happened? It happened before. It was just a few weeks before, or eight chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, before Jesus is arrested. Peter says, I will always follow you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replies to Peter, will you? Very truly, I tell you, what? Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And then a couple of hours later, after Jesus, Jesus is already taken into custody, Peter is standing be, beside a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest. And he's asked three times, do you know Jesus? And three times he denies that he even knows the man. So, that act of betrayal isn't just in the background of what's going on at that uh, breakfast in Galilee that I just read, you, read to you. No, it's right in the forefront. It's something that Peter and Jesus and the rest of them could not avoid. Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. So you can imagine then, what is it like for Peter to be asked three times, do you love me? In that context. I don't know about you, but I've kind of been there myself. I don't know about three times being asked, but yeah, I have done something bad betrayed somebody else in some way, big or small. We all have done that. 
And then the guilt lingers like a fog, especially when you confront or are confronted by that other person. And sometimes that person might come up to you and say to you, do you love me? And like Peter, you stammer out, yes, you know I do. And you expect maybe the other person to just blast you with something like, well, if you love me, you wouldn't have done that to me. Right? That's how it's supposed to happen. But that's not what Jesus does at all. When Peter says, yes, I love you, you know that I do, Jesus responds not with resentment or anger or judgment. He responds with a reminder of the mission that Peter has. He says simply, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. That is, even with all of Peter's serious faults and foibles, Peter still, or Jesus still chooses Peter and he sends him out to embody the good news of grace and mercy and peace and love and healing. All of this is taken together and comes out in this story. Peter the failure is also Peter the disciple and the model for all the rest of us too in concrete acts of love. So, how does Peter react? We don't know exactly, but I would imagine that Peter reacted to Jesus' grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and sending him out on a mission with relief and joy and maybe a sense of wonder. Who is this guy who can forgive even something bad that I did to him? And maybe Peter jumps back in the lake again. I don't know. It doesn't say but I do know that what happens with Peter is the rest of his life, he goes out and he gives everything he has, even his own life. Remember, he is actually crucified in Rome later in his life, which is what that other passage about uh, being led around by a belt is all about. He is crucified. He gives his life to serve and to love Jesus and the people who Jesus loves, which if you think about it, includes every single human being on this planet, especially the, the most vulnerable people. So what does love like that look like? I don't know. It's not an easy question to answer. It's not simple. So I was glad last week when Bob Hoseman from our church, he sent out an email to a bunch of people this week that had a list of definitions of love given by elementary school kids in some sort of a competition. So eight-year-old Rebecca says this, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love, she writes. Seven-year-old Bobby says, Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas. If you stop opening presents and just listen. And the winning definition of love came from a four-year-old boy whose next-door neighbor was an elderly man who had just lost his wife. And on seeing the man cry next door, this little kid went around and, and went into the man's yard 
and he came up to him, and he jumped in the guy's lap, and he just sat there. And his mother asked him later on, what did you say to the neighbor? And the little boy said, nothing. I just helped him cry. That's a pretty good definition of love, if you ask me. It's being present and attentive and taking the risk to meet someone at their own level and in their own time of need. And that brings me to something that Jesus said to his disciples on the last night of his life. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Did you ever sing the song, They'll Know That We're Christians by Our Love? That's where that comes from. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to feed his sheep, and that's what it looks like to be Jesus for other people. Now, as I said before, there's an obvious objection to this, and that is that no one is really going to be exactly like Jesus, okay? No one else, not even the most loving, self-sacrificial person in the whole world can ever be exactly like Jesus, let alone going around telling the people you meet, hey, I'm Jesus. What are they going to do? They're going to lock you up. I get that. But I also remember a story, and uh, some of you probably remember it too. It's about a little boy who's afraid to go to sleep. So his mom says a prayer with him, and she tucks him in bed, and she shuts out the light and shuts the door and goes back to her room. And then a little while later, there's a knock on her door, and who is it? It's a little boy up and says, Mommy, I can't sleep. She takes him back to her, his bed, puts him in, and she says to him, you know what? Don't worry, sweetie. Jesus is going to take care of you. She goes back to her room. Before you know it, he's back. Ring a bell for anybody? He's back. Jumps into bed with her. She takes him back to his room and she says, don't be scared, just ask Jesus to be with you. And the little boy replies, that's what I'm doing. I just think I need Jesus with skin on. Don't we all? That's one of the best definitions I have ever heard about what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. Being Jesus with skin on. Do we do it all the time? Of course not. We don't do it all the time. Just look at Peter in the Bible if you want an example of somebody who screws up. Look at me. Look at anyone. We are not always Jesus with skin on, but we try. At least we should. A lot of you heard the story this past week about a guy Name's Terry McGrath, Terrence McGrath. He's taken in two homeless folks named Greg Dunstan and Marie McKenzie to live on his property here in Piedmont. 
and the newspaper headline in the Chronicle predictably reports breathlessly that his house is worth $4 million. And it also points out that the Piedmont Police Department has been has received phone calls from neighbors reporting on the activities of these two, I guess, suspicious-looking black folks just hanging around in our town. But that's not really the point of the story. In fact, it's just a, a small part of the story. Because what it's really about is why. First of all, why do we have such a homeless problem all around us, and why, do, why aren't we all working together to fix it? But secondly, why is it that uh, Terry McGrath decided to risk getting involved in the lives of these two people that he doesn't know from Adam? Seems that he read about them earlier, in, back in February, in a newspaper column that told their story and heard it. And he uh, got in touch with somebody who knew them, set up a coffee with them at a, at a, at a place down in downtown Oakland, got together, and he decided to open up his home to them. And here's why. He says, it's helped me, helped bring me back to my roots as a young kid. Yet he actually grew up one of nine children in a very poor family up in uh, Napa County. I cannot avoid the responsibility I have to life around me. I have a personal obligation to take responsibility when I see injustices. And to me, this is a clear injustice. <clears throat> now, I don't know, Terry McGrath, some of you do. So I don't know whether or not he's a practicing Christian going to church or whether he thinks he's following Jesus or anything. It doesn't really matter. What matters <clears throat> is that somehow, through some combination of his own life experience and the formative relationships he's had in life and, and his own practice and his own resolve to do something, he became the sort of person who is capable of seeing injustice, letting it touch his own relatively safe life, comfortable life, and taking the risk to reach out to two incredibly vulnerable people. Don't get me wrong, I am not saying we should all now go take homeless people into our own homes. Maybe you're led to do that, maybe you aren't. Maybe it's not even the right thing to do or possible for you. It may not even be the right solution to homelessness, by the way. I know it isn't. It's such a complicated problem. But to become the kind of person who is capable of seeing what is going on all around you and who's ready to take the risk to be Jesus with skin on? That is something every single one of us is called to do, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And you know, it's not, a, not just up to you and me to do it on our own as individuals. Spiritual and moral development is actually a team sport. We do it together. And the church, any church, and our church, as the local branch of the body of Christ is where we practice being Jesus, a 
sharing stories and hearing stories from our faith tradition and from each other and learning from one another, this is the place where we practice. Stanley Hauerlas, who's a great Christian writer, uh, writes this. Through the teaching, support, sacrifice, worship, and commitment of the church, utterly ordinary people are enabled to do some rather extraordinary, even heroic acts, not on the basis of their own gifts and abilities, but rather by having a community capable of sustaining Christian virtue. The church enables us to be better people than we could have been if left to our own devices. Do we always do that? No. But still we try. And we should keep on trying. So right now I'm going to just pause for a moment or two here with you, through the church, and in this place. I'm going to pause. And I'm going to use this big screen as a bit of a prop, a device. What I want you to do is either look at this screen, which is kind of a blank slate, or you can close your eyes. You can do it that way. But what I want you to do is to project some images onto either this screen or the screen of your own closed eyes, whatever you choose. And first, I want you to imagine Peter and Jesus by the lake. What's going on in that scene? Do you identify with anybody in that scene? Any of the characters? Even a small bit. What's going on? How does it make you feel? And then shift, as you're able, shift the scene to something in your own life. Has someone ever acted as Jesus with skin on for you? You ever felt that touch? Heard that voice? Felt that presence? What was it like? And then finally, what would it be like for you to be Jesus? somebody else? Is there a situation in your life right now where you can or you should be Jesus for somebody else? I don't expect you to leave this place with a final answer to any of those questions, but I want you this today and this week to, to ponder those questions. What was it like disciples. What has it been like for you to experience Jesus? What would it be like for someone else to experience Jesus in you? I'm going to close this morning with something that Rachel Held Evans wrote. Rachel was a brilliant Christian writer and teacher, a best-selling author, some of my Dear friends, we're very close friends of hers. And 
She died yesterday. She died at the age of 37. She was 37 years old. She died of unexpected complications arising from an infection, leaving behind two little kids and a husband. But in her short but incredible life, inspiring life, she caught something essential about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. She writes, This is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they're rich or worthy or good, but because they're hungry. And because they said yes. So as we prepare ourselves this Communion Sunday to come to the table in a few minutes to take the bread and to drink from the cup, this is a meal that Jesus has prepared for us. You might even call it breakfast in Piedmont. I don't know. Whatever it is, we are called to this table so that we can keep saying yes. Yes to love and to service and to, to seeing being Jesus for other people and seeing him too in his name.